back there. It's actually need to fix that. It's six minutes slow. All right. Um, uh, announcements. I'll be gone Thursday night because I'm leaving in the morning to go to Tucson for a three-night conference. And the topic is going to be on the new man and old man and its relation to spirituality. And I'm going to be approaching it from a different perspective than I did when I was in Ephesians, just um, coming at it from a different angle. So that will be, um, they live stream it starting at 7 o'clock Arizona time, which is 8 o'clock Central time now that they have, <clears throat> we have gone off of the government-imposed uh, daylight savings time. They never go on it. Okay, and um, the other big thing is that our Christmas dinner is going to be after church on December the 11th. That's our Christmas slash Thanksgiving dinner uh, falling between the two. And if you haven't voted yet, you have 30 minutes left because they apparently extended the time in Harris County due to some uh, late poll openings this morning due to irregularities. And speaking of the election, I looked up at the title slide for the Judges series, and I looked right at the bottom line when chaos was king, the 2022 election. We could make that point. So we as believers just need to relax, know that God's in control. We fulfill our responsibilities as best we can, and then we have to just trust the Lord for the rest. And so I think he's capable. He is omniscient, which means he knows a whole lot more about what he is doing and what's going on than any of us, so we just have to trust him. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him, and he will direct your paths. They that wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings as eagles. They shall run and not grow weary. They shall walk and not faint. Fear thou not, for I am with thee. Be not dismayed, for I am thy God. I will strengthen thee, yea, I will help thee. Yea, I will uphold thee with the right hand of my righteousness. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your request be made known unto God, and the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, shall defend your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Thou wilt keep him in perfect peace, whose mind is stayed on thee, because he trusteth in thee. For the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God shall stand forever. So let's have a few moments of silent prayer so we can make sure we're in right relationship with the Lord, ready to study his word. And then um, after a few moments of silent prayer, I will open in prayer. Let's pray. Our Father, we are so thankful we live in a nation with a biblical and Christian heritage that focuses upon the divine institutions as the bedrock of any culture, any society. But, Father, that bedrock is under attack by jackhammers of the left. And we just pray that you would uh, expose the evil that they wish to bring upon this nation and the lawlessness that has come as a result of the fact that 40% of the people in this country no longer believe in absolutes, and that means they don't believe in the absolutes of the Bible or the Constitution or anything else. And so as we, as we fall into this quicksand of moral relativism, we do pray that there might be a change, that we might um, be receptors of your grace, just as many times you uh, showed grace to Israel, delivered them, and they did not turn back to you in any of those times. So, Father, we pray for your grace upon us that we might have the stability of our culture, stability of our money, that we might support missions and missionaries uh, we still send out more than any nation in the world and that we may continue to be a steadfast uh, ally to Israel. Father, we pray tonight that as we study this extremely unusual passage in Scripture that you will help us to see that the real problem here is paganism. 
Not that somehow the Bible is justifying this, but that paganism destroys a civilization, destroys the way people think, and destroys how they think about men and women. And, Father, we pray that you would enlighten us to these things. In Christ's name, amen. All right, uh, I want to add a note to what I uh, started with Sunday morning when I talked about this survey from summit.org. You can go to their website and find that uh, the survey uh, that was done showing that 40% of Americans, uh, mostly younger people under 45, do not believe there is any absolute truth. 42% of American voters aged 18 to 29 um, believe in absolute truth, but 55% believe each person determines their own version of truth. 50% of American voters aged 30 to 40 believe in absolute truth, but 46% believe each person determines their own version of truth. And they say found out that 59% of American voters aged 41 to 55 believe in absolute truth, but 35% believe each person determines their own version of truth. And as you get Older, the, the, the demographics of older Americans are higher percentage going up to 65% believing in absolute truth. But even of those over, over 65, 32% believe each person determines their own version of truth. The problem is when everybody is believing their own version of truth, it just results in absolute chaos. Because there's no, there cannot be stability when you do not have some form of uni, unified understanding of truth, of law. Uh, that 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 is what provides order, and order is necessary for any culture to prosper. Uh, once you lose order, it a culture will implode. And one of the comments that was made by Dr. Jeff Myers, who is now the president of Summit, uh, said, the number of Americans who say there is no absolute truth is alarmingly high. But among young adults, we have now officially passed the tipping point. The majority of youth now say that each person determines their own version of truth. And so... Um, we're studying that. That's what, why I've entitled or subtitled this series when chaos was king. Because the theme of judges is that everyone did what was right in their own eyes. It was moral relativism. It's nothing new. It's just been repackaged under a new name. And it is the rebelliousness of everyone's sin nature. And when a culture is it is just absolutely shaped by paganism, by the ideas of false religion because of, of uh, Romans 1, as we studied, spent two or three uh, lessons uh, several weeks ago on the creator-creature distinction. Once you deny that, then you're, the only place to go is into the quagmire of moral relativism. And this was the kind of culture that Jephthah grew up in. It wasn't a culture that was that different from the culture that uh, that we have. And as a pastor, I have noted over the years just how many Christians who have some sort of background in uh, maybe regular church attendance, I don't mean at a strong Bible teaching church, but even there, you find people who just show up on Sunday maybe two or three times a week, and they don't listen to anything during the rest of the week. They don't read their Bibles. They don't read good Christian literature, and they don't think about it in terms of their own thinking and their own lives. And the result is that they, as the Bible puts it, they don't renew their thinking. They are conformed to the culture and the thinking of the world. And the result is that they have sort of baptized a lot of their ideas as Christian when they're not biblical. And there are a lot of things that are accepted and thought of in our culture as Christian, but they are, have their roots in the theological liberalism that changed Christianity, paganized Christianity, uh, from the early decades of the 19th century. 
and that those roots in the er, those movements in the early 19th century uh, developed the fruit of modernism or religious theological religious liberalism in the late 1900s, which split every denomination in this country. Uh, they had first fragmented over slavery about 40 years earlier, and then each of these denominations went through their own earthquakes as those who were uh, no longer believing in the Bible because they were swayed by the academic ideas of Darwinism and Freudianism and various other Marxist ideas and uh, sociology, psychology, all of these different ideas that were redefining who people are. Psychology redefined the makeup of the soul. Sociology redefined the nature of of human uh, society. And you had Darwinism that redefined origins so that people were no longer unique individuals that were created in the image and likeness of God, but they were just the result of uh, billions of years of uh, accidental uh, accidental mutations that uh, led to the present environment, and in many cases, they went to pure materialism, which meant that they have no soul. They're just totally governed by certain uh, chemical reactions. And this has brought us to a culture that is uh, just absolutely bereft of meaning and purpose anymore. And this is not too different from what uh, was experienced at the time of Jephthah. He, as I've st- as we pointed out before, he grew. He was the bastard son of a prostitute. When he got old enough to where he was a threat to the inheritance of his of his half brothers, they ran him out of town, and he joined with a gang that uh, would raid and pillage and plunder various villages. And he was tough enough to become their, and smart enough to become their leader and to be successful so that when the Ammonite invasion occurred, uh, the people couldn't find anybody who would volunteer to be their leader, so they went to him because he had, they could see he had the qualities and the character to uh, potentially lead them successfully against the uh, against the Ammonites. The interesting thing is at no point do we say, see that God raised up Jephthah. We do see when we come to our passage that the Spirit of God came upon Jephthah. So as we look at this passage, we're reminded of the fact that that we have a historical context, not unlike the historical context of the last uh, 200 to uh, 400 years in uh, the United States of America. We started off well, and with successive generations, we have declined. The same thing happened uh, with the uh, during the period of the judges, and so Jephthah is uh, next to the bottom. Samson is the worst. He's the second worst, and this situation that arises because of his vow is one that has no parallel anywhere else in the Bible. It is a uh, uniquely horrific uh, event in the annals of Scripture. So I just want to remind you a little bit of the geography here. Biblical geography is important. So we have uh, over down here the blue water is the Dead Sea. Up at the top to the north is the Sea of Galilee, The Jordan River runs from the Sea of Galilee down to the Dead Sea. It is fed on both east and west by various rivers. You have the Yarmouk River at the north and the Jabbok River in about halfway down on the the northern side, north of the Dead Sea. And this is an area that is under dispute. The Ammonites are claiming that it was historically theirs, and we saw how uh, Jephthah responded 
and and tore down all of their artic, uh, all of their arguments last time. Uh, the area over on the wet, uh, excuse me, on the east side of the Jordan is from the perspective of Jerusalem across the Jordan. The terminology we use for that is transjordan. That's across on the other side. If you're on the uh, east, west side, that's cisjordan. So this area over here on the right is the area of mo- the modern Hashemite kingdom of Jordan. And where you have ancient Rabbah is approximately where you have modern uh, Amman. And so this area is generally the area where a lot of this action is taking place. And then to the south, you have the Arnon River. This area down here was a part of that which was controlled by the ancient Moabites, and we'll look at some other maps here in just just a minute. Our conclusion we reached last time, just to encourage all of us, is number one, God is always in the background in Israel. Even though he does is not said to be the one to raise up Jephthah, he is moving in his providential guidance to bring Jephthah to the forefront as the leader. So God is not mentioned. He's not said to be delivering them except you have a somewhat ambiguous reference when we get a little further down into uh, Judges 11, uh, 35, 36, 37, where it does say that God uh, God delivered them. And, uh, and the next verse just has a third-person um, third singular uh, pronoun, and in, and that should really be understood to be a reference back to the Lord uh, prior to this. So when you look at about verse um, 32, it says, So Jephthah advanced towards the people of Ammon to fight against them, and the Lord delivered them into their hand. And so this is the first time we see the Lord mentioned in relation to the deliverance or anything that Jephthah is doing. And then verse 33, I don't know how your translation uh, handles this, but in my translation, the New King James, you have a lowercase h for he, and yet the actor of the previous uh, finite verb is the Lord. And it should be understood that the Lord delivered them, that is the Ammonites, into his, Jephthah's hands, and he defeated them, not Jephthah, but the Lord. And so that would be, uh, that would be the Lord defeated them from Aurora as far as Minnith. And we'll look at that verse in just a minute. So God's grace is working despite Israel's apostasy and carnality, just as his grace is working in this country, in spite of the carnality, rebelliousness, and apostasy of this country. There are many ways that God is doing wonderful things in this nation. Second, we have to recognize if we're still alive, God still has a plan for our life. Israel, as a nation, often mirrors the actions of the individual or an individual soul in the New Testament and in the church age. And so we know that God kept Israel alive. Even when they were out of the land, they were still God's chosen people. Even when they were in Babylon and in Egypt and in Assyria, they were still God's chosen people. He had not deserted them. He was just punishing them for their disobedience. Uh, no matter how badly we self-destruct in life, God will never leave us or forsake us. He's always faithful. No matter how bar- spiritually barren our life may be, he's still the one who brings life where there is death, and there's always an opportunity for God to uh, renew us. A key verse in the previous section is Judges 11.27 that tells us a little bit about about Jephthah. He knows some biblical truth, but just because somebody knows snatches of biblical truth doesn't mean they think biblically. He says, therefore, I have not sinned against you. As he goes through all these arguments we looked at last time, the historical arguments, the theological arguments, personal arguments, all these different arguments against the Ammonite 
uh, claim that this land that they were taking was hit, was theirs, uh, Jephthah concluded that it wasn't that he had uh, fallen short of the mark or sinned against them, but that they wronged him, that is, as the representative leader of Israel, by fighting against him. And he said, may the Lord the judge. So he recognizes here that this is Yahweh. Yahweh is the judge. And he's saying, may the Lord render judgment this day between the children of Israel and the people of Ammon. It's interesting because that's the first time that we have a reference to Yahweh in this uh, in this passage from him or uh, someone else. Now, he mentions him a couple of times as he's reiterating the argument, but in terms of a personal thing or a prayer, this is the first time he mentions him. So last time we went through the, how Jephthah owned the negotiations with the Ammonites and they lost the argument, but they still wanted to fight. And then we see that uh, uh, in verses 29 to 33, there are attempts by uh, Jephthah to manipulate God, and this is exhibited most strongly in the pagan vow uh, that he makes in um, in verses 30 and 31, and that is filled out in and and the consequences of it in 34 to 40. Now, if you look at this section that we have coming up that begins in verse 29. We have the statement, then the spirit of the Lord came upon Jephthah, and he passed through Gilead and Manasseh, and passed through Mizpah of Gilead. And from Mizpah of Gilead, he advanced towards the people of Ammon. Now, the way this is written in the Hebrew is that the very next statement is a continuation of the narrative style. Uh, of, uh, of telling a story that this happened and then this happened and then this happened and then this happened. That standard Hebrew narrative, it may be bad English, but that's uh, too bad. This is how God the Holy Spirit writes. And so he, Jep, he goes on to say, um, and Jephthah made a vow to the Lord. Now, there's not necessarily a connection between the vow of verse 30 and uh, the Spirit of the Lord. There's not a disjunction that takes place. He's just listing different things that happened in the order they happened without making a statement about their cause and effect relationship. And so verses 30 and 31 actually are a break from the action being described uh, about the battle starting in verse 29 and resuming in verse 32. So what we see in verses 20, in verse 29 is really a geographical description of how the Spirit of the Lord uh, directed Jephthah in raising an army. This is one of the things that's important for us to understand is that the role of the Holy Spirit in the Old Testament is not for the spiritual life of those that he had a ministry to. So just to remind you a little of the uh, geography here, you have the Yarmouk River in the north, you have the Jabbok River uh, about halfway down to the uh, the, uh, Dead Sea, and this is where a lot of that action, the action takes place down here in the lower right, as Rabbi mentioned, uh, mentioned earlier. I thought I'd put another map in there. I guess I didn't. So what what we have here is when you, you, I want to point this out. It's hard to read on this map, especially when I advance it. Uh, but right here, it's hidden by this circle. There's a G, and then behind where I put Jabbok, so you could read it. There's an I, and then there's an L right where this red line runs, and then you have E A D. So that's where the map is identifying uh, Gilead, okay? And so you have Ramoth of Gilead here, and this is the uh, area of Gilead. So when we read in the text um, that uh, 
he passed through Gilead and Manasseh. This is East Manasseh. So it's talking about the fact that he is going through this territory and probably on the analogy or comparison with, with uh, Gideon, he is rousing the troops. He probably is going from village to village, and they are announcing with a blast on the shofar and calling uh, people to uh, join in the army against Ammon. And that's the result of the Spirit of the Lord coming upon him, is the Spirit of the Lord came upon him for, a, for military strength, military insight. And the result of the Spirit of the Lord coming upon him was that he goes out to raise an army. He passes through Gilead and Manasseh, and he passes through Mizpah of Gilead, and from Mizpah of Gilead, he advances towards the people of Ammon. So Mizpah of Gilead is here. We learn later that this is his home. And this is where Mizpah is located to the northwest of, of uh, Rabbah. And so there he's coming down from Manasseh, Gilead, Mizpah, and he is headed down to the southeast where he is going to uh, confront the army. Verse 32, after the vow episode, we're going to set that aside for just a minute. He says, um, uh, we read, So Jephthah advanced toward the people of Ammon to fight against them, and the Lord delivered them into his hands, and he, that should be an uppercase, I believe, uh, he, that is God, defeated them from Oror as far as Mineth, 20 cities, and to uh, Abel, Karamim, with a very great slaughter. Thus the people of Ammon were subdued before the children of Israel. Now, that's going to pretty much um, end the battle narrative at this point. It's picked up again uh, at the beginning of chapter 12, but we'll get there uh, next week. What I want to look at initially here is this first statement that the Spirit of the Lord came upon Jephthah. We're left with a question as we read this, how much did Jephthah really know about Yahweh? How much did he know about the law? And we can only conclude from what we read that he did not know much. If it weren't for Hebrews 11, we probably would conclude that that he was uh, probably didn't wasn't a believer except for the fact that the Spirit of the Lord comes upon him. But he is listed along with uh, uh, Gideon and Barak and Samson in Hebrews chapter 11 as a hero of the faith, those who trusted in God. So we know that he was a believer, but he is like a lot of believers. He doesn't have enough teaching, enough knowledge of God's Word to really to have it impact his his thinking in any in any significant way, and so we read about this, and I've pointed this out before, and I wanted to just review a couple of passages. The role of the Holy Spirit in the Old Testament was not for the spiritual life of the individual. Now that gets really confused if you were to read some of the books that are written about the Holy Spirit, and usually they begin with a chapter on the, um, the Holy Spirit in the Old Testament, they get things pretty confused because they look at the Old Testament as not being dispensationally distinctive, at least not to the degree that we would. They don't make a distinction between Israel and the church. This is typical of covenant theology and a broader segment uh, called just replacement theology. Lutherans don't believe in covenant theology. They have their own theology, but it's still a replacement theology. Same thing in Roman Catholicism. So covenant theology usually affects those who are the reformers. Uh, and that is a term that has been applied historically to Calvin and those who followed Calvin in the Protestant Reformation. Those who followed Luther are called Lutherans. Those who followed uh, uh, those who were a Baptists, believed in believers' baptism, were called Anabaptists. 
okay so and then later baptists but these were called um the reformation those who followed calvin and uh you have calvin and zwingli and some others in french uh french switzerland french switzerland and um german switzerland and so that's called reformed theology and uh, during the time of the persecution of Protestants in uh, in England, during the middle part of the 16th century, uh, the church, many of the Christian leaders went to Geneva, which was where John Calvin had been, and that's where they received their theological education. So they bought, brought Reformed theology back to England and Scotland with them. It also heavily influenced the Dutch Dutch. Reformation Church, and they don't see that heart, that much of a distinction between Old Testament and New Testament. They have an allegorical interpretation. They think that Israel is the church in the Old Testament and the church is Israel in the New Testament. They don't have a consistent uh, literal interpretation. So when it comes to understanding the role of the Holy Spirit, in the Old Testament, they get it all mixed up and confused with the role of the Holy Spirit in the, in the church age. But when we go back and look at passages, uh, we don't have a lot that mentions the Holy Spirit in the Pentateuch. You have a couple of references in Genesis. There's this reference in Exodus 31, 40 chapters in Genesis, so this is getting towards the end of Genesis, and God is giving instructions to Moses for building the tabernacle. And he tells him that he has set aside two men, Bezalel and Aholiab, who are going to be the head of the carpenters and the craftsmen and the jewelers and the goldsmiths and the silversmiths. And God says, See, I have called by name Bezalel, the son of Uri, the son of her of the tribe of Judah, and I have filled him with the Spirit of God. Now, this is not the same kind of filling as you get in Ephesians 5.18, talking about being filled by the Spirit. This is Hebrew, number one. Number two, there's no indwelling and uh, filling by the Spirit in the sense of Ephesians 5.18 in the Old Testament. It makes it clear what the role of the Spirit is. I have filled him with the Spirit of God in wisdom. That's the Hebrew word chokmah, and that's the word that is translated wisdom when you go through all of the Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, and the wisdom literature. And wisdom in, in, in the Hebrew mind was not intellectual attainment. It isn't like the philosophical wisdom of the Greeks. It is a skill at accomplishing something. So here are these craftsmen who are given skill in their crafts, and it's the Spirit of God who is directing them. They're filled with the Spirit of God in wisdom, in understanding, Okay, and I talked about this word in uh, Philippians when it was the word discernment was used. That that comes or is ultimately based on the concept of of the of the Old Testament understanding and discernment, which translates the Hebrew word being. And I said I always remembered that when I was in first year Hebrew, memorizing vocabulary was being is the ability to decide between two things. And this word understanding is a form of that verb. And it has that idea of making wise decisions in the process of your craft. So it's skill that has to do with their carpentry, their uh, metalwork, everything else in designing the tabernacle so that it was the greatest work of art in the ancient world. Uh, that uh, in understanding and knowledge and in all matter of workmanship, in design, artistic works to work in gold and silver and bronze, in cutting jewels for setting and carving wood and to work all matter of workmanship. And I indeed have appointed with him a Aholiab, the son of Ahezamach of the tribe of Dan, and I have put wisdom in the hearts of all the gifted artisans. So that was one role of the Holy Spirit was giving them 
the skill in their talents of of the, whatever area of artistry was involved in either woodworking or metalworking or working with jewels. Another example we have of the Spirit of God is in uh, Numbers 11.17, where God is speaking to Moses, and he says, Then I will come down and talk with you there. I will take of the Spirit of God, that you is a typo in there, uh, take of the Spirit that is upon you. So we know that the Holy Spirit was upon, not in, those part those prepositions are very important upon Moses said i will take of the spirit that is upon you and will put the same upon them that is these he choosing these subordinate leaders the 70 elders to whom he would delegate authority so god is saying i'm taking the spirit is upon you what was the role of the spirit upon moses it was to give him wisdom in leading the people, two and a half, three million uh, Jews, which God characterized as stiff-necked and rebellious, and leading them in the, the uh, desert. So he says, I'm going to take the spirit upon you, and we'll put the same upon them. And in Numbers 11.25, then the Lord came down in the cloud and spoke to him, Moses, and took of the spirit that was upon him and placed the same upon the 70 elders. And it happened when the spirit rested upon them that they prophesied, although they never did so again. Now, that's an unusual use of the word prophecy, and we've studied this before, that when Miriam prophesied, she sang. When Deborah was called a prophet in Judges 5, and in, I mean in Judges 4 at the very beginning, but she, along with Barak, wrote the hymn or the psalm of, of uh, Judges chapter 5. There are, there's an example of those who are in the orchestra in the temple that David organized that they prophesied with harp and lyre. So prophecy has a different connotation than we normally give it when we think it means uh, foretelling judgment, warning about judgment, uh, uh, telling some things about what will happen in the future. It also has this idea of crafting and singing uh, great hymns or psalms to God. And that's what I think was going on here. That's the same kind of thing that happens uh, when Saul falls among the prophets in First uh, Samuel, and they are singing, that's what's going on here. That's that's the idea. So it's it's not this idea of charismatic singing and um, the irrationality that goes along with a lot of the modern rock worship songs. Uh, none of that. This is very organized and orderly, under the control of God, the Holy Spirit. And it's interesting, too, that, that this is at the very beginning of the age of Israel. I want you to notice something. I haven't brought this out in the past, but I've observed it, that when God is beginning a new work, God does certain things to authenticate it at the beginning, but they are not normative for what happens afterward. For example, God gave the law to Moses. Moses came down from Mount Sinai, and he heard the sound of, of partying, orgies down below. And uh, as a result of that, th- that he came down and he called upon the Levites who were still faithful and had not followed into the idolatry of, of Aaron, and he called on them to come by his side and then to kill a number of the Jews that were involved in that orgy. And so they massacred about seventeen or 18,000, I think. I can't remember the exact number. I think that's what it was. But that wasn't normative. But God is doing something new, so he, he, he takes, takes the life. He's, he's showing that this is uh, radical and important. He does it again in, in uh, Joshua chapter 4 when Achan uh, refuses to uh, follow the Lord's orders, and the Lord said, "Don't take anything from from um, from the from Jericho. Uh, don't take any any of the spoil. Don't take any anything at all." And he took some plunder and buried it under his tent. And so then there's uh, they they go into the next battle at Ai, 
at eye, and um, they lose completely, and there's a number of them killed. God, at the beginning of certain things, God comes down very harshly. Uh, you have the situation that occurs in the New Testament where you have Ananias and Sapphira at the beginning of the church age, and they're a little jealous because Barnabas gets a lot of, uh, a lot of positive strokes because in great humility he had sold property and he gave that to the church. He was a wealthy man. And so they sold some property. They kept a lot back for themselves and just gave some to the church and, and, and lied about it and said they'd given it all to the church and the, uh, Holy Spirit uh, struck them dead uh, immediately. So we some, some of these things look very harsh to us. You have another example from the Old Testament after Elijah transfers his mantle to Elisha, and then Elijah is caught up in the chariot of God and taken to heaven, and Elisha, they're over on the Transjordan area, and they're coming back across the Jordan, and they're coming up to Bethel, which is the seat of idolatry. Remember when um, when Jeroboam was made king of the ten northern tribes, he established a worship center for a golden calf, put a golden calf in Bethel and a golden calf up north in Dan. And he said, this is the God that delivered you from the Egyptians. And so when Elisha's coming back and he's just starting... Um, he's just starting his um, his prophetic ministry as the mouthpiece of God, and these young men come out of Bethel. Uh, very likely, they are involved in. Some of them may have been priests of Baal, and they are of this uh, uh, golden calf, rather not Baal, but the golden calf. And they were uh, leading the people in idolatry, and they come out and they ridicule Elisha. And they, uh, and they, uh, insult him by calling him, him bald. And there's a lot of debate whether he's actually bald or not, but the idea was that he was the disciple of Elijah. Elijah was his covering. And so without a covering, that word bald just means he's without a cover. And so, um, that idea, uh, was that they were just ridiculing God's representative. So it's the start of a new ministry. So what does God do? He sends uh, some bears out of the woods, and they attack those young men, uh, and they maul them and kill a bunch of them because uh, God wants respect for his prophet, and he's not going to put up with a bunch of uh, representatives of a false religion coming out and ridiculing his man. But th- those things aren't normative. They, they are serious events where God is showing that something has changed and he's authenticating it, uh, sometimes uh, very, very harshly. So you have this kind of a situation here where uh, this was something unique. God is uh, uh, giving the Holy Spirit for leadership purposes to the 70 elders, and so a one-time event occurred uh, when, they, when they prophesied, and they never did it again. In Numbers 11.26, you have uh, two men who remained in the camp. See, this is just the next verse, 17.25, and then 26 talks about Eldad and Medad. The Spirit of God rested upon them. Now, they were among those uh, listed who had not gone out to the tabernacle, yet they prophesied in the camp. So that's another example, I think, of using prophecy in the sense of singing uh, psalms to God, not uh, some sort of prediction about the future announcement of judges, judgment. The strange one is Balaam. Balaam is said to have had the Spirit of God come upon him. He's the false prophet that uh, Balak, the king of Moab, had bribed to come and curse uh, the Jews, but the Jews, uh, but but Bala, but God prevented him. Said, "No, you're not going to say anything that I don't allow you to say, and you're not going to say anything negative about uh, about Israel." And the Spirit of God came upon him, and he did have pro- prophecy. In fact, several things that he said in his three major statements uh, related to the future coming of the Messiah. 
the next person, you have Moses, you have the 70, you have Aholiab and Bezalel in that Exodus generation, and then in the conquest generation, you just have Joshua. And Deuteronomy 34.9, Joshua, the son of Nun, was full of the spirit of wisdom, for Moses had laid his hand on him, so the children of Israel heeded him and did as the Lord had commanded Moses. Now that phrase, spirit of wisdom, was used back in Exodus in conjunction with a parallel statement that God put the spirit of God on Bezalel for uh, for wisdom. And then later it's referred to as the spirit of wisdom. So it's the Holy Spirit who produces wisdom and skill for Joshua as uh, the general who has victory over the conquest. Not, that's the only mention of the spirit in Joshua. Then we get into Judges, and we have the reference to Othniel, uh, the reference to the Spirit of God with Gideon the, and uh, Jephthah and Samson. That there's uh, because because Deborah is a prophetess, and we have her song. There's an indication that the Holy Spirit was involved in that by way of inspiration, but there's no overt statement that the Holy Spirit came upon her or came upon Barak in terms of giving them uh, the victory. So what we have here is, uh, is a, a very rare thing for the Spirit of God to come upon anyone. And even though God is not said to have raised up Jephthah, uh, he he does send the Spirit of God to give Jephthah skill in raising troops and leading the troops. And in verse 32 we read, So Jephthah advanced toward the people of Ammon to fight against them, and the Lord delivered them into his hand. And he, here I corrected it as a capital he, defeated them from Aurora as far as Mineth, 20 cities, and to Abel Karamim with a very great slaughter. Thus the people of Ammon were subdued before the children of Israel. So a complete defeat. Now here's a map. I spent a lot of time trying to find some of these places, and um, on one map it's hard to read a little bit. I've, I have it here, so we'll look at it. Uh, Abel Karamim and Mineth, nobody knows exactly where they were, but they're thought because of the reference here to be somewhere south of Rabbah in this area. And so when it says in the text that it was from Abel Karamim and Mineth down to Aror, Aror is down here on the Arnon River, and so it's all of this area that is captured and taken uh, by Jephthah, that he uh, defeated the Ammonites from Aror here in the south as far as Mineth, 20 towns taken, uh, up to Abel Karami. So this is a slightly different map showing uh, the red here is the direction of the troops, and then these others come in. Here's the location of Mizpah, Rabah, and down here they've put Mineth and Abel Karamim in the map there, but we don't know exactly where they are. Now we come to Jephthah's vow. As I said, this is a very strange situation. It's the only thing like this in all of Scripture. And so we have to take a look at it. The New King James Transit translates it as, Jephthah made a vow to the Lord and said, If you will indeed deliver the people of Ammon into my hands, then it will be that whatever comes out of the doors of my house to meet me when I return in peace from the people of Ammon shall surely be the Lord's, and I will offer it up as a burnt offering. Now, I have, um, I've got a couple of notes here for understanding this terminology, especially the last phrase, burnt offering. What does that mean? This is the Hebrew word ola. It is related to the a, a cognate, actually just a different form of the word Allah. The verb Allah means to go up. If you are immigrating to Israel, you are making aliyah. You're going up to Israel. 
It comes from the same word. So this word has its root meaning as going up. In the halot, which is the Hebrew-Aramaic lexicon of the Old Testament, they define, in each of these, there's one definition. There's not like you find in some dictionaries where there's two or three or four or five or ten or twenty different words that are nuances to the word. It only has one. They don't even list it with a one because if there's a one, you expect a two. But since there's no two, three, four, five, or six, they just list the uh, definition. Halot says it is a sacrifice which is holy, not H-O-L-Y for those who aren't able to read this, but holy, W-H-O-L-L-Y, which is holy, that is completely burned comprising domestic animals and occasionally birds. The Dictionary of Classical Hebrew, which is a recent development that has come out, a multi-volume lexicon, uh, says that it means a burnt offering that is a sacrifice entirely consumed by fire, offered daily morning and evening at the temple. BDB, which is the older Brown Driver Briggs lexicon, which is what those of us who went to seminary before 1995 had to deal with. It came out in the 1914 or 15 was the first edition. The one we used was 1918. Said it's a feminine noun, a noun feminine. That's what the NF stands for. It's a whole burnt offering that which goes up to heaven on a, on the altar that's all this that's how they define it so when you have a statement that i'm going to offer something as an ola it's a very technical meaning and um and what happens when we get down into verses uh 34 to 40 that we read that um, in verse 39, it was so at the end of two months that his daughter returned to her father and he carried out his vow with her, which he had vowed. You know, literally it says he did what he vowed. A lot of people don't like that. A lot of evangelicals over the centuries have not liked that because they read Judges 11 through the lens of Hebrews 11. And if Jephthah is in the hall of faith, how in the world could he have sacrificed his daughter as a whole burnt offering? How could that have happened? And it's a horrible thing. It's a horrific thing. It is one of the greatest examples of child abuse in all of history. And yet this is what took place, that you can't avoid the language that is used there. Ola is never used of dedicating someone to serving in the temple. And when it says he did as he vowed, you can't, there's no wiggle room there to say that he did something other than he vowed. In Genesis 28, 20, we have a, another vow. Um, there are four vows in the Old Testament, and they are similar to Jephthah's in their structure. Jacob vowed a vow here. I, I changed the, instead of Jacob made a vow, literally in the Hebrew, it is, the verb is to vow, and what he vows is a vow, so it's repetitious. Then Jacob vowed a vow saying, if God will be with me. See, they all start with an if clause. If God will do thus and so, they're bargaining with God in some sense. If God will be with me and keep me in this way that I am going and give me bread to eat and clothing to put on so that I come back to my father's house in peace, then the Lord shall be my God. Notice that phrase, come back to my father's house in peace. Jephthah says basically the same thing. If I have victory over the Ammonites and come back home in peace. So it's, it's very similar. Uh, so if I come back to my father's house in pieces, then the Lord God shall be my God. 
notice he's not asking, he's not making a vow of some outrageous thing, and he is saying, if God it will be with me, which God had promised him, if you will be with me as you promised, then you will be my God. That's what Jacob is saying. In Numbers 21.2, we have another vow that the people of Israel made, that if they would deliver, deliver this people into my hand, then I will utterly destroy their cities. They are responding to God's command to destroy every man, woman, and child of the Canaanites. And Israel made a vow that if you, Lord, do deliver them into our hand, then we will annihilate all of them. First Samuel 11 is Hannah's vow. She makes a vow, and she says to the Lord, if you'll look on my, the affliction of your maidservant. She was, she was one of two wives, Hannah and Penina of Elkanah, uh, the, and uh, she's the mother of Sa- Samuel. And she says to the Lord, if you'll look on my affliction, because Penina was always ridiculing her, putting her down because she was barren, because she couldn't have a child. And so she goes to the Lord in prayer and says, if you will look on my affliction and remember me and not forget your maidservant, but will give me a male child, then I will give him to the Lord all the days of his life and no razor shall come upon his head. He'd have be a Nazarene, Nazarene vow. And then Absalom made a, reiterated a vow that he had made, or he, actually he's making it up, I think, to go in and... Uh, uh, do some damage to, to, um, to, to David. And he says if, uh, he, he has to get, get out of Jerusalem. He wants to go down to Gisher in Syria. And what he's basically saying is he's going to raise, he's going to start a, a rebellion there. And so he says, well, I made a vow that if the Lord brings me back to Jerusalem, then I'll serve the Lord. Uh, this was just lip service to the idea. So we have the, these other vows, and the grammatical structure of Jephthah's vow is basically the same. He is um, he is saying the same kind of thing, but the difference is in the content. He he makes a somewhat ambiguous statement. He says, "If whatever comes out of the ha- house uh, to meet me," and so it's it's. Ambiguous. In fact, he uses a uh, a masculine relative pronoun, and so he asked the question: What did he expect to come out of his house? Um, did he expect an animal, or did he expect a person? The word "ola" never refers to human sacrifice. So, did he? What did he expect? And then when he comes home and his daughter comes out singing and dancing in joy over his victory, he is totally grief-stricken as if this was not what he expected. Now, there is one view that I think has some merit, that if you go to many houses in the ancient world, and I've um, talked about this in relation to... um, uh, the the birth of our Lord when he was born he's the traditional story is he they go to an inn but the word for inn is not the word that's used in Luke two the word that's used in Luke two is the same word that's used for upper room when they look for the upper room when they're going to celebrate the Passover in in like John John chapter thirteen and a house in those days would have uh, what we might, to, to see an analogy with today, what we might call a carport. And you have out in the carport probably a lot of stuff, but you can put your car there in inclement weather. You don't have a garage, but you have a place to keep your car so that it's not going to get any hail damage or uh, any other uh, damage that can come from falling limbs if there's a hurricane or tornado or anything like that. So... This was something like that, that inside the house there was sort of an area that you would bring your prized or pet lamb or a goat, and these animals would be kept there, in, especially in the winter, to protect them from inclement weather. And so this is why they would have a manger within the house. And what when it says in Luke that when 
uh, Joseph and Mary came that the, there was no room at the inn. The word there is a word for upper room. There was no room in the upper room. In typical house, they would have an upper room that would be a time when all the families getting together at feast days, they can all eat up there. Or if there are extended family members coming to visit, it would be the guest room. And uh, Joseph and Mary got to the house late in the sense that the guest room was already full. And so they were down in the area where the animals, the prized animals, would be kept. And, of course, with Mary about to have a baby, that gave them more privacy, and there would be a manger there. So the traditional view that they came to, you know, the Motel 6 in Bethlehem, and it was already had their no-vacancy sign out, is just uh, a very... Um, very medieval view of the of, of the situation. Well, on that analogy of a Middle Eastern house, and from what I have read, that is very common to this day in rural areas that they have houses. They'll have a place where their prized animals will be brought in, and so Jephthah could have been thinking that uh, there would be a sheep, a lamb, goat, something there that would come out when he came home, and that is what he would offer as a burnt offering. And that, I think, is a, is a real possibility. We don't know. But we know, do know that what happens is that his daughter comes out. Now, one of the things that has happened, as I pointed out, is there have been a large number of people, uh, evangelical scholars, who've said, no, 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 he wouldn't sacrifice uh, in fact, I was told, I wrote my master's thesis on this, and I was told by one professor at Dallas that they, they didn't have chi- child sacrifice or human sacrifice in Israel this early. Really. In Deuteronomy 12.31, Moses tells the people, you shall not worship the Lord your God in that way, the way of the Canaanites. For every abomination to the Lord which he hates, they have done to their gods, for they burn even their sons and daughters in the fire to their gods. So as early as the time period when Israel is in the wilderness during those 40 years, Canaan is sacrificing uh, to their children to the to Baal and Moloch and Chemosh and the the other pagan gods, it's repeated. This statement is repeated in Deuteronomy eighteen ten. There shall not be found among you anyone who makes his son or his daughter pass through the fire, or one who practices witchcraft or soothsayer, or one who interprets omens or a sorcerer. So what we see is that human sacrifice was practiced among the Canaanites. Uh, as early as the time period of the Exodus, long before uh, Jephthah came along. And it continued even into the period of Second Kings. Second Kings 3, 26 and 27 takes place right at the end of Elijah's ministry. Just, or actually, Elijah goes up in chapter 2. This is in the beginning of Elisha's ministry that... Um, when the Israelites are fighting the Moabites, the king of Moab saw that the battle was too fierce for him. He took with him 700 men who drew swords to break through to the king of Edom, but they could not. Then he took his eldest son, who would have reigned in his place, and offered him as a burnt offering. And that's an adult son. Offered him as a burnt offering upon the wall, and there was great indignation against Israel. So they departed from him and returned to their own land. So this idea of a burnt offering of a human being, a horrific thing, was not uncommon among the pagans of the whole time period of the of uh, of Israel from the time of the Exodus 1400 BC all the way through to the uh, latter period of the kingdom. And there is even evidence from Carthage. Carthage is later uh, and there's evidence there the Carthaginians were related to the Phoenicians and the Philistines, and there is this uh, one inscription that has been uncovered, but also they would get into graves, 
and open the graves, and they would find these clay pots that were filled with human ashes. And these were had inscriptions on them that were dedicated to their gods. And this inscription reads, To Our Lady, to Tanit, the face of Baal, and to Our Lord, to Baal Hamon, that which was vowed by A, it's giving the name of a person, by A to the son of B, son of C, because he, that is the deity, heard A's voice and blessed him. So this is inscribed on one of these uh, clay pots filled with human human ashes. Daniel Block in his commentary says, The clause, whatever comes out of the doors of my house to meet me, envisages the exuberant welcome by children of a father who has been away on a military campaign. For the moment, the reader does not know that Jephthah has only one child and that in putting her at risk, he also jeopardizes himself and that ironically, in securing his own victory, he sentences his own lineage to death. That's the, he's the end, going to be the end of the line because he is going to um, uh, kill his daughter. What's interesting, his daughter's not named. There's no mention of the mother. What we're seeing now, and we've seen it a little bit, is that there is a, a minimalization of the importance of women. This is typical under paganism. So that some of the things that feminists actually uh, go to the Old Testament for and see this horrible patriarchalism, it is. It's pure pagan patriarchalism. It is not a, a biblical view of of men and women based on Genesis chapter 1 and Genesis chapter 2. And so this is taken to the extreme. That's what paganism does. Well, I'm going to stop here, and uh, we've got a great deal more to kind of look at in terms of this and going and then going into the rest of Jephthah. So we'll cover that in chapter 12 uh, next time. Father, thank you for this opportunity to look at these things tonight. It brings us face-to-face with the reality of paganism, that it's ugly, it's horrible, it destroys relationships, it destroys our humanity, it destroys the value we place on human life. And we are in the midst of election when a lot of these things are part and parcel of the uh, worldview of various people running for office. And it, it is what we can expect from a nation that has turned away from your word as the ultimate reference point for truth and the need for truth. And, Father, we pray that your grace would shine upon us and that there may be a turning, a changing. But if not, we will stand firm no matter what the cost because we know that this is eternal truth that you have revealed to us. So, Father, we pray that we might be encouraged and not discouraged that whatever happens tonight, that whatever happens in the coming weeks, as there will be certainly be lawsuits and fights and all kinds of things, that none of that will discourage us because we know that you are in control of history and that whatever you permit to come to pass is under your sovereign providential direction of history leading to those events you have uh, determined for the end of days. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.